On the wall of the Special Forces Memorial Court at Fort Bragg, the words of the prophet Isaiah are etched in stone. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Master Sergeant Gary Gordon and Sergeant First Class Randall Sugar answered that call. Today we inscribe their lives and their deeds in the distinguished and valorous history of this country's men and women in uniform. We pray that God will embrace their souls and may their service and sacrifice inspire generations to come. Master Sergeant Gary Gordon and Sergeant First Class Randall Schugert were real American heroes. During the military operation in Mogadishu on October 3rd, two American helicopters were downed by hostile fire. Although United States Army Rangers established a defensive perimeter around the first downed helicopter, they could not reach the second one quickly by land. In the wreckage of this helicopter lay four injured Army crewmen. Another helicopter with Sergeants Gordon and Shugart on board was dispatched to provide cover from above. But they came under withering fire, and the two sergeants instinctively understood that if the down crew was to stand a chance of survival, someone would have to get them on the ground. Immediately, Sergeants Gordon and Shugart volunteered to go. They were told, no, it's too dangerous. They volunteered again. Again, they were told, no. They volunteered a third time and permission finally was granted. Sergeants Gordon and Shugart knew their own chances of survival were extremely bleak. The pilot of their helicopter said that anyone in their right mind would never have gone in. But they insisted on it because they were comrades in danger, because they believed passionately in the creed that says, I will not fail those with whom I serve. And so they asked their pilot to hover just above the ground and they jumped into the ferocious firefight. The citations that will be read shortly describe the extraordinary courage that Sergeants Gordon and Shugart demonstrated in the battle that followed. Gary Gordon and Randall Shugart died in the most courageous and selfless way any human being can act. They risked their lives without hesitation they gave their lives to save others. Their actions were clearly above and beyond the call of duty. Today, on behalf of the United States Congress, I award them both the Medal of Honor. By direction of the President, authorized by Act of Congress, March 3rd, 1863, the Medal of Honor for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of life above and beyond the call of duty is awarded in the name of Congress to Master Sergeant Gary I. Gordon, United States Army. Master Sergeant Gary I. Gordon, United States Army, distinguished himself by actions above and beyond the call of duty on 3 October 1993 while serving as sniper team member, United States Army Special Operations Command with Task Force Ranger in Mogadishu, Somalia. Master Sergeant Gordon's sniper team provided precision fires from the lead helicopter during an assault and at two helicopter crash sites while subjected to intense automatic weapons and rocket-propelled grenade fires. 
When Master Sergeant Gordon learned that ground forces were not immediately available to secure the second crash site, he and another sniper unhesitatingly volunteered to be inserted to protect the four critically wounded personnel, despite being well aware of the growing number of enemy personnel closing in on the site. After his third request to be inserted, Master Sergeant Gordon received permission to perform his volunteer mission. When debris and enemy ground fires at the site caused him to abort the first attempt, Master Sergeant Gordon was inserted 100 meters south of the crash site. Equipped with only his sniper rifle and a pistol, Master Sergeant Gordon and his fellow sniper, while under intense small arms fire from the enemy, fought their way through a dense maze of shanties and shacks to reach the critically injured crew members. Master Sergeant Gordon immediately pulled the pilot and the other crew members from the aircraft, establishing a perimeter which placed him and his fellow sniper in the most vulnerable position. Master Sergeant Gordon used his long-range rifle and sidearm to kill an undetermined number of attackers until he depleted his ammunition. Master Sergeant Gordon then went back to the wreckage, recovering some of the crew's weapons and ammunition. Despite the fact that he was critically low on ammunition, he provided some of it to the day's pilot and then radioed for help. Master Sergeant Gordon continued to travel the perimeter, protecting the downed crew. After his team member was fatally wounded and his own rifle ammunition exhausted, Master Sergeant Gordon returned to the wreckage, recovering a rifle with the last five rounds of ammunition and gave it to the pilot with the words, good luck. Then, armed only with his pistol, Master Sergeant Gordon continued to fight until he was fatally wounded. His actions saved the pilot's life. Master Sergeant Gordon's extraordinary heroism and devotion to duty were in keeping with the highest standards of military service and reflect great credit on him, his unit, and the United States Army. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with my co-host and creator of the Veterans Project, Tim Kozak. And we have a special guest on with us today, uh, Bob Keller of Gamut Resolutions. Gentlemen, how's it going? What's going on, John? Hey, John. Thanks for uh, having me on as a co-host. Again, it's always a privilege and uh, very happy to have you on, Bob. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, you got it. All right. So Bob, Bob was on previously. Um, I want to say, uh, <laughs> it was a while. Ago. Yeah, it was a while. It was like over a year, definitely over a year. Um, yeah. yep. so since it's been, you know, a while, I would like to have Bob kind of reintroduce himself. Uh, so for the new listeners, you guys can get familiar with him. Uh, so Bob, you can talk about, you know, what you were doing before you joined the army and then we could kind of, as much detail as possible, walk through your career. Uh, well, geez, going back before. So I, I went in the military late, so I did a lot of things before. <laughs> that, that could be a whole podcast in itself. 
so that was be, like right before I went in. I was actually playing golf for a living. Oh wow! Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, John hears me a, getting excited over here. I'm like, tell us about your life before. There's <laughs> a big difference from going to that and then going right into the military. But yeah, yeah. Once I got in. Uh, so for those that didn't hear the last podcast, I have. Uh, 21 years in now, and all those have been with the uh, special ops community. Uh, Can we go down that rabbit trail a little bit, John? I guess if you don't mind, um, I, I wanted to kind of ask you a little bit about you know that life previous. So what what built up into you joining the military in the first place? <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, it's, I think it was just always in me to do that. But I think just the how I was raised, where I, what I was doing at the time, I thought that was the route I should go. Is you know trying the golf route, and that's it was. I want to say that was going to be the easy way to make money, but that's kind of where that's kind of what drove me to that. Um. So. But I mean, my whole life growing up as a kid, the only thing I did, I I lived in the woods. I mean, that's all I, uh, cripes I had in my backyard, you know, living on, we had five acres, but backed up to hundreds of acres. I had obstacle courses back there. I had forts everywhere. I mean, I lived out in the woods. That's, that was like my passion running around, uh, acting like Rambo. So yeah, fast forwarding, you know, my whole life and starting doing the golf thing, traveling around. I just I knew it wasn't I wasn't doing it because I loved it. I was doing it because I thought I could make money at it, and that finally finally hit me at a a tournament in Louisiana. I missed the cut and I was like, "What the hell am I doing?" And you know, what do I really want to do? And should I I packed up my car drove back to Florida and like two weeks later I was in the military. So Bob, would you say that you felt pretty uh, fulfilled even, you know, despite missing that cut, I know you missed that cut in Louisiana, but did you feel pretty fulfilled playing the game of golf? Were you happy in your life at the time uh, playing the game? Uh, yeah, I, was, I mean, I was happy. I was having a good time. It was just, it wasn't, it wasn't what I'd love to do. I wasn't, I wasn't uh, passionate about it. You know, I mean, it was just, it was a job. So yeah, I was having a good time, but I knew there was other things I wanted to do. And the military was one of them. So that's what drove me to that. And yeah, I wasn't going to go where I didn't want to go into the military and just do anything. Uh, I went in with the Ranger contract right off the bat and then just kind of kept progressing from there. And what year was that that you joined? Uh, 97. Oh, okay. So this is pre-9-11. So you're, you yeah. were. And that's the, yeah, that's, you know, that kind of brings me to what I was going to say just for my, my intro really is uh, what made or what was the decision to start my shooting uh, business. And it really was because I had, I had pre-9-11 service and I had post 9-11 service and right. the difference the difference between training from pre 9-11 to post 9-11 was just huge so 
when I started my business, it was that was the biggest part is kind of stepping away. I would say where I come from, you, you kind of live in a bubble where you don't really see how the civilians and everyone else are training and what they're doing on the range. So when I, when I finally saw that and like, same thing with like the social media, you know, all the videos out there and all the crazy stuff being taught when I, when I actually started watching some of that and seeing people on the range training the wrong way, that really drove me to, uh, to want to get into the instruction so I could give back a lot of the stuff that I had learned from pre nine 11 to post nine 11. So that's and I imagine you're, I imagine you're, co so you're coming from the pinnacle of training. I imagine there was some crazy stuff that you were seeing, you know, from the, from the shooting community, you know, how, how much did that, you know, drive you to teach the proper way. And obviously there are differences in teachings and, and in the way that it's done, but I'm sure you saw some crazy stuff going into, going into uh, opening your and starting your business. Yeah. I mean, that was the whole reason why I, I did it. I, I knew that I could give a lot back to the community just from the stuff that I had, I had seen and I had done. Um, Cause it's not, it's it's all really basic stuff that matters and i think what happened throughout the years especially with the instruction because you know I mean, there's so many instructors out there now uh it's it's really it comes down to i think a lot of instructors they're doing the right thing they want to do the right thing but it's how can how can you fill a class or how can you actually get students to leave and be happy for what they did for that one or two days. You know, and that's, that's right. making up. I don't want to say bullshit, but it kind of is. It's, you know, <laughs> doing, doing crazy drills, uh, making the students happy, making them feel like they're getting, uh, that, that, that Hollywood or the, you know, the movie training. Right. Uh, and that's not, that's, that's not what works in the, in the real, in real world or in real gunfights. Uh, so yeah, that was the biggest reason why I got into instruction and started my business. And I haven't changed from that. I mean, I, I started out teaching real basic stuff, trying to, trying to focus and stay on just shooting. And I haven't, uh, that hasn't changed in the last two and a half years. Can you, can you, uh, talk a little bit about the fulfillment from you know seeing it click in a civilian into where you know you're going from you know basically i'm sure you're dealing with some people that have almost no knowledge or, or you have to kind of reteach their whole um you know every everything that they know how you know how much fulfillment is there in seeing them finally catching that moment and and realizing and some of those things starting to click yeah that's that's uh it's great. I mean, that's, that's why I'm still doing it. It really is cool to see people that come to my classes, think either they think they're good shooters and they think they're doing the right thing or people that have no clue. And then to watch them progress over a day or two days, or, you know, depending on a three day, five day class, whatever it is. And then to leave going, you know, Holy crap. That's, 
everything or that, that's a lot of stuff that I didn't think actually mattered, which really comes down to all the basics of shooting and safety. Safety is one of the biggest thing that people, <laughs> you're shooting guns that freaking kill people and people are not safe on the range or even guys that actually live by the gun just have been taught or done the wrong, wrong thing when it comes to safety for so many years. That's just something they're not thinking about. So that's one of those things I think that it should be totally opposite, but the more experience you have and the more gunfights you're in, the more safety conscious you are. Whereas you would think the brand new beginners that don't know what they're doing, you'd think they would be like terrified and nothing (laughs) but safe, safe, safe. And then you'd think all the guys with experience should be like, you know, this is my freaking, this is my safety, you know, going back to that Black Hawk movie. (laughs) It's totally opposite. I mean, we are safety Nazis, or at least I am, just because the more shit that you see and the weird things that happen in a gunfight, you know that you you can't not be safe because bad things happen. Uh, you know, when, when people are getting blown up, they're getting shot. If that gun's not on safe, your finger's not up the trigger. That's how freaking other accidents happen when they shouldn't. So, right. And guys that don't know that and haven't experienced that, they don't think it's ever going to happen to them. So, yeah. yeah, it should be totally opposite, but it's not. So I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, not only, you know, getting the guys out shooting and, and telling them or teaching them the why of what I'm doing, uh, the, the greatest thing that I see when guys leave the range is that they're freaking safe. And that's the one thing I'll tell people and everyone that, that's listening now, like before I start a class, uh, I mean, obviously, when, when you come to one of my classes, I want you to become a faster, more accurate shooter. But ultimately, what I want you to do to leave that leave that range in two days or after three days of training is become a smarter shooter, a safer shooter, and a more confident shooter. Right. That, that's what matters in gunfights. And no one, no one ever thinks of that stuff. So that's what I'm looking for. That's what I want people to get out of my classes. I don't hey, John, do you... Sorry, Bob. John, do you yes. do you like to shoot, John? Oh, I love it. Yeah. Man, John so, said he was going to come to one of my classes. It's been a year. <laughs> John, you haven't gone to his class? Not, not yet, man, unfortunately. John's terrible, man. <laughs> John John has made so many promises. <laughs> yeah, I never keep him. I'm horrible, man. All right. I'll, offer it, I'll offer it up to you then. You can, you can come to one of my classes. Well, unlike John, I'll actually fulfill my yeah, promise. Yeah. I, I would love to have you. Oh, I'd love it, man. Hey, John. So, John, you like to shoot, right? One thing, you know, it's it's amazing to me how many people, when I joined the Army even, had never been around a weapon before in their life. It was yeah. amazing to me. Like, like when I was joining at 17 years old, you know, my, my father kind of – I wasn't raised on a range or anything, but I remember very, you know, learning from this, learning from our, um, my aunt and uncles, actually their pastor at their church. He was an old Naval officer. And I just remember them like slamming gun safety into me. Like there's a laser that extends from the barrel and goes all the way around the world. And if you flash somebody at that laser, you killed them, you know? So anything that you never put, you know, you never, 
put anybody or you know anything that you don't intend to kill or harm you never put that in front of the barrel as simple as that yeah, they, like they were it was you know i learned that when i was i learned that when i was six years old that was the first time my dad let me handle a weapon like he had me you know out he obviously had his arms around me you know was teaching me proper procedure but you know as a young kid i was learning that so it was amazing to me when i was getting to the army john and i was seeing all these guys and like I mean, you know, you know, flashing, you know, flash each other with their muzzles, like not just totally yeah. like having no clue. I, I, I think I saw a drill sergeants on like 10 occasions have to like butt stroke somebody or like, you know, like <laughs> knock them off the range or something just ridiculous where you're like, oh, man, we got a long way to go, guys. We're fighting the global <laughs> war on terror with these guys. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I I see it every every day on the range, and that's that's what I'm trying to change because it it is absolutely a must. Yeah, yeah, I I think some of that also d- depends on like you know where people come from because right. you know, if you're raised in a certain like you know I'm from New York City, and I think you know it, it's mostly like a liberal city. Uh, you know there are conservatives yeah. here and, and pro gun people and stuff like that, but. I think, you know, if you're not conscious of it, you grow up in a place like New York, inner city, or, you know, maybe Chicago or something like that, where you grow up and guns are only used, the only time you hear about guns are when they're used in a crime or something like that, to kill somebody or, you know, robbery or something like that. So you are, you kind of associate it with, as being something negative, but right. then you go somewhere else, like, you know, somewhere in Texas or North Carolina and that's like kind of like a way of life or a culture and it's it's used as a tool you know for protection or for hunting or you know whatever people are using it for and yeah. I, I think it's just a different approach and i think you know when you come from a place like new york city you you kind of have to be exposed to something different in order to view it differently and unfortunately not everybody has that kind of experience you know right and just to reiterate that, I mean, I, you know, I grew up in suburban San Antonio and, um, you know, even though it's not like, a, you know, I'm not out in a rural area, it's still Texas and still military city USA. So you just grow up around and your neighbor's got a weapon and your neighbor's neighbor has a weapon. Your neighbor's grandma has a weapon. Like, you know, it's just kind of a constant and not everybody's out shooting all the time, but it's just kind of accepted as everyone has one, you know, like I always tell people like the worst place to like rob a house would be Texas. Like it's just yeah. a generally bad idea because yeah. you're automatically getting into a bad situation. You know, it's like, Hey honey, you know, somebody came in the house, you know, target practice, you know? So you know, it's like, right. there's that kind of culture, you know, um, here in that, even in the suburban and city areas, you know, it's kind of just accepted as part of Texan culture. Yep. Yeah. And I think, um, yep. And then, obviously, you know, with the experience that, you know, Bob has and you have, Tim, you, you see different things um, with people being exposed to the weapons and still having that, you know, like Bob said, not so safe, um, like, tendencies. And um, I think there was a video that surfaced, like, two or three days ago of, like, a, a federal agent. The guy did, like, a backflip in a nightclub. <laughs> Drops his uh, weapon and then as he's picking yeah. it up, it it discharges and he shoots yep. the guy in the leg. It's like holy shit, you know. Yeah, I saw and that this guy's video, a federal man. agent, you know. Oh, I know that was pretty. That was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, Bob, I, mean, I gotta I gotta ask you when um you know trying to change that mindset, you know, when you got guys out on the range and you know, and obviously I don't want to give all your, you know, instruction away <laughs> because people, you know, need to go to your class. But um what you know, how do you change the mindset of somebody coming into that kind of environment where maybe they haven't learned the uh, safest, the safety, the safest practices, uh, you know, as far as, you know, gun handling. Yeah. Well, just repetition. It's, it's not that they don't want to be safe. I mean, there's some drills that you do like guys that actually are good shooters, but don't do everything, you know, the safest way or putting the gun on safe before doing things. Uh, that's really just showing them that you can, if if you practice it enough, you're not actually wasting time by being safe. Uh, that's just explaining it and telling them the why. But all the other stuff and guys that just don't know, it's not that they don't. It's not that they don't want to be safe. They just didn't realize. Uh, like dealing with ARs, uh, most people once they load up that gun and start shooting, that that gun stays on fire the whole time, and shit half half the time their fingers stay on the trigger. So it's getting them out of the habit of doing that and showing them that they can be just as fast and be safe. Uh, And then once they realize that and they learn how to do it, it's just repetition. It's getting out of that bad habit, getting them to make being safe a good habit and for it to happen without even thinking. So, you know, that's hard to do in in a two-day class. I mean, that's something that when they leave – leave one of my classes. I mean, they, you got to keep that up. You got to keep doing it throughout the the rest of your shooting career. You know, I mean, right. it, just like I said at the beginning, I mean, it comes down to repetition. Muscle memory. <laughs> right. And, you know, with, with the philosophy that you have, you know, when you're approaching this, I, I've seen other videos that you've done online and, and we've talked before and, it seems that you like to push and focus on on the basics and kind of mastering the basics. And you feel like in your experience that mastering the basics really is what works in, in like a real gunfight type of situation, right? Yeah, it's, it's everything. And the reason why is, uh, you know, I don't want to call out any other instructors, and this doesn't even have to be at a class. When guys go to the range just to practice on their own, if they're if they are on an outdoor range and they're you know able to do like the run and gun and stuff and the the quote unquote cool guy stuff, you know, uh, that, and that equates into like scenario based training where they're coming up with drills, trying to create scenarios that it would be in a gunfight. The reason why I don't do that a lot is that you can't, I couldn't put a class through a million freaking scenarios, have them know that those million scenarios and have them down pat and they're, they're ready to be in a gunfight. And then when they get in a gunfight, even though they went through a million scenarios, I guarantee at that time of the gunfight, it won't be one of those scenarios that we went over. It's always <laughs> going to change. You can't you can't train for scenarios. But yeah. the one thing that does stay constant in a gunfight is you bringing the gun up, you getting sight picture, and you pulling the trigger. That never goes away. So yeah. 
you know, you do have to be physical. You have to be, you have to be an athlete to be a good gunfighter, but you can do that at a freaking CrossFit gym. You can do yeah. that on your own being in shape. Um, then when it comes down after, you know, once you have that, you are, you are an athlete, you're, you're physically fit. Uh, you can handle yourself in any situation. Well, then it comes down to the shooting. So, yeah, uh, depending on the situation, which I said, it's always going to be different. I mean, every gunfight that I was in, you know, I'd almost laugh to myself and say, holy shit, I never fucking trained for this one. <laughs> but the one thing, the, the one, the one constant that never changed was me having to get the gun up, me having to pull the trigger or me getting sight picture, me pulling the trigger that never changed. So right. that's why I do what I do. And I teach because it's, I can't put you through enough scenarios to get you prepared for a gunfight, but I can teach you how to shoot. So that's, that's the only thing that matters. I mean, I'm not saying doing the running and gunning and doing the scenario based training isn't good. I mean, that is good to, uh, it'll bring out your faults. So if you start, and I, I do the running and gunning and the, and the running drills and moving in different barriers. I do that, but only after I've taught, something on the flat range from a static position and then i will incorporate all those drills that i just taught into a drill like a running drill and that will bring out all the deficiencies that we just did on the flat range static position without moving and without thinking about anything else and it just shows people like holy crap all that stuff that i was doing from a static position when i didn't have to think of other things i was doing perfect and now i added one simple you know, moving from one position to another and all the stuff that they were doing perfect on the flat range went to shit. And it just, it shows guys like, okay, I got to go back to the flat range, perfect what I was doing, make it an absolute muscle memory to where that'll happen without me thinking about it. And then you can start doing more of the running and gunning stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm talking about guys that are doing well on the flat range. They're doing anything right. I, I get them on the clock, which, you know, gets the heart rate up right off the bat. Have them, you know, running from position to position. I mean, you have guys all the time that forget to put the gun on fire. You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. that, can't, that can't happen in a gunfight. Nope. So, it just shows them. So, um, it is good to do running and gun and drills or scenario-based, but it's after you have perfected the shooting portion. And, and not many people do that. You know, and I would have been one of them. That's where that whole pre-9-11 to post-9-11 thing comes into play. Mm. I was one of those guys, too. And it was pre-9-11. You only know what you know. So you're trying to come up with scenarios or training that you think it's going to be like in a gunfight. You know, so and that was all getting the heart rate up, doing the, the wazoo PT stuff on the range, uh, you know, climbing over walls, climbing under cars, doing whatever. Uh, that was that was like my daily training on the range, and then you go to you know post nine eleven, you actually see what actually works over there. And shoot, I that all that stuff that I did pre nine eleven, I probably only do ten percent of the time. The rest of the time, that ninety ninety percent of the time when I'm on the range, it's doing freaking shooting from a static position. So that's where that's where it's different. So you went into the uh, Ranger Regiment off the bat pre-9-11, were you still in the Ranger Regiment when the wars kicked off? No. I'd, I'd gotten out and actually uh, 
got out out and went to uh, went to college. Okay. So wow. Was, so then when nine eleven kicked off, I was still in college, and that's that's what got me to go back in because that was what I always wanted to do was go to combat. Was there was there kind of a bit of a I guess. You get out, so you know you're in you're in Ranger Regiment, and you're there, and we're not really actively involved in any conflicts at the time. Um, what was it? Was it kind of? Did you get in and just feel almost disillusioned in a way because there was nothing going on? Did you feel, or you just you know thinking to yourself, I joined to go to war, and we're not at war? And was it was that your reason for leaving? Yeah, well, I mean, I kind of had a plan going in get my degree, uh, and then, you know, either, either do a federal job or, or what have you. I really didn't have, you know, either go secret service or FBI or something like that. Um, but I knew I needed my four year degree to do anything federal. So that was the reason why I got out, uh, right out of the range battalion. And, and that was the reason there was nothing going on. I, you know, I went in, I wanted to have that experience. Obviously, I wanted to get in gunfights and be in combat. <laughs> That's all that I ever wanted to do when I was a kid. So when there was nothing going on, yep, it was like, all right, let's go do my, you know, get get the college done, do that. And then, of course, I got out and like a year and a half later, 9-11 kicked off. So that's why I went back in. Gotcha. And did you go right back in or did you finish uh, with your school? Nope, didn't finish, still haven't. <laughs> you mean it's hard to be special operations and finish your degree at the same time? Yeah. Well, uh, a lot of guys do it, so you know, good on That's them. amazing, man. I don't know how. I was distracted enough by a regular career by being deployed. I was like, how guys were taking like mobile classes and online classes, and I was like, no, nah, I'll just get back to it when I get out get out of Iraq. <laughs> it's impressive the guys that do it, especially the ones that have uh, families. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, that's the biggest. Uh, besides, like the charity stuff I do, well, for the special ops, but for the law enforcement too. The biggest thing is is the families are the ones that struggle. I mean, you're right. talking. There's a lot of time gone. You know. Right. Right. Oh yeah. So that's that's a big big thing. I mean, I I got fortunate enough. My wife said, you know. She she had enough, and that was all I needed to hear. So, yeah, uh, but yeah, it's it's a like you said, you, hard to do both. It, there is no time. I mean, so guys that do it, it's it's impressive because I I never went back. I haven't got mine. Right. As in a degree, that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um. You know, so you were, you were, you know, we talked about how you were in before 9-11 and after and the difference in, in some of the training. Um, and do you feel like guys went to war and immediately realized what training was happening up to that point wasn't effective? Or was it, you know, when you came back, you kind of look back and, and go over, you know, things that happened. Uh, can we talk about kind of that whole process or? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say it was ineffective i just do what i do is because when you have like i said all that stuff is still good like how we trained before it still worked and it it obviously you know it helped me i mean i didn't die 
But I, the reason why, like I said, the constant, the thing that never changes, you know, getting the gun up, getting sight picks, pulling the trigger. Uh, since that is the constant and not many people have perfected that yet, I only have one or two days or three days on the range with you. So if I'm doing nothing but drills for two days, you're not getting the shooting that you need. You know, so I, I don't want to say we were training the wrong way, but it was we were we were wasting a lot of time on the range mm. setting up drills and running drills when when we could have been shooting. And you know, that could be totally different for other guys too. I mean, that's 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 what I saw and that was the the big takeaway for me with all the gunfights that I had been in was when I was thinking about how to set up my training. I was like, what's, what is the most important thing that I can teach in two days or in a day class? Right. And everything, every scenario I came up with for, you know, my, my, uh, my curriculum was, it always came back to shooting. That's the only thing that mattered. I mean, obviously if I have a month with you, we would get into a lot of other things besides just shooting. But when I only have two, one or two days with you, that's what I want to focus on because I know that's what guys need. Right. And um, so with your company, uh, you know, you're, you're running these shooting courses, but you also do a lot of work with law enforcement. Uh, can we talk about some of that? Heck, yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is, that's, it's probably 50, 50% of who I work with. And uh, it's it's awesome to be able to give back to those guys because they are guys that are living by the gun. I mean, they're carrying a gun around every day. They need to be properly trained. So, uh, yeah, I do a lot of work with law enforcement, and that's why I started uh, my charity uh, called the Gamut Initiative, which part of that, the Gamut Initiative, is Operation Blues that I do, and that's giving free training back to the law enforcement. Okay. And, and so, how, does, how does that work? Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's hundred percent free training for those guys. So it's kind of a no brainer. The problem is, is that a lot of the departments don't even have the budget to send their guys to free training. Even if I'm coming to them, wow. like to, to have wow. enough ammo to take the classes wow. or, Jeez. you know, or they're not going to give the guys uh, time on the clock to go to the classes. So then it's got to be like a weekend class. And then, a, you know, then the guys come into the situation of, you know, it's either work or family, you know. So it's amazing how many times, like, guys will reach out or teams will reach out to do an Operation Blue and end up not doing it because they either couldn't get the time off or didn't have the ammo. So, wow. That's where the whole Gamut Initiative came in, though, to start the charity where people can give to the Gamut Initiative. That money goes through the Sarasota Community Foundation. Uh, so you get the pot of money in there, which is all tax deductible. It's 501c3. Uh, and that way, if a you know, department wants to do an Operation Blue, uh, we take that money from the Sarasota Community Foundation and that's where you can pay for the range, pay for the ammo. All they have to do is, you know, have the time to be able to go to the range. Uh, and then twofold, twofold on the Gamma Initiative, 
nice thing about that is that we're helping out the military veterans too on the special operations side because now that money that's in the pot not only pays for the ammo and the range for the cops, but it also pays for guys that are like transitioning out into the real world from the military that I can send them to go teach a class and pay them through the Gammon Initiative. Wow. So you're, give, you're giving guys that, you know, veterans that are getting out that don't have a you know solid job lined up and they're kind of in that transition period between finding a job to go, you know, do a weekend or a couple of weekends uh, giving classes. That's awesome. I remember when we last spoke, I think it was at the time, it was just mostly you doing the teaching for the classes. Yeah, that's why I started the Gamma Initiative. I mean, and that's my problem with the Operation Blue. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty busy doing the civilian side and, you know, the paid LE classes to where I can only do a certain amount of Operation Blues a year. So that's kind of where the Gamma Initiative came in. I was like, you know, if I could get guys to donate to the Gamma Initiative that want to help the LE out, uh, I can, if, you know, down the road, if this gets big, hopefully, you know, people will donate after hearing this. <laughs> yeah, give up the money. Uh, I mean, you know, you could, do, you could do 30, 40 Operation Blues a year. Right. You know, throughout the country, given free training. I, I just don't, me personally, I don't have the time because of, you know, my my company and all the classes I already have set up. So, yeah, if, if we could get other instructors to go out and give these classes, we could do a, a hell of a lot more Operation Blues and give a hell of a lot more LE guys free training. Right. And I, I think that's like a, a common issue for police departments across the country or sheriff's departments is um, the budgets are not federal and it really depends on the municipality that they're in. And some departments oh, yeah. have much bigger budgets than others. And Absolutely. You know, like, like yep. the, the NYPD, they, they have like, you know, humongous budget and um, they're able to get guys good training and stuff like that. And But then if you go to some small town in the Midwest, maybe it's not the same deal, you know? Yep, absolutely. Running that all the time. Yeah, is there? Well, let me ask that question, Bob. Is there is there a difference? You know, obviously between departments, as far as you what you see um, from individual officers when they come into the classes and, and their knowledge and you know around a range and how much you know and how much this training comes into an as an issue. Yeah, yeah, big time. I mean, there's there they need they need help. You know, and it's might be some some of their faults to not do it on their own, but you're talking a lot of departments. It does come down to leadership. So some departments do have the budget, but they have the wrong leadership. Like the right. leadership, doesn't want to, they don't want to pay for equipment. They don't want to pay for guns. They don't want to pay for ammo. They don't want to pay for training. So, uh, you see that a lot too. departments that do have the money, but they don't have the leadership that backs the training. Uh, and then you see the opposite too. Good leadership not the biggest budget, but they're all about getting their guys trained properly. I mean, you're talking about these, some of these departments and, and this is, so I deal with a lot of the SWAT teams uh, more than I do, you know, the local beat cops. Right. But some of these departments are, the only, the only, they're shooting 50 rounds a year. That's like crazy. their annual fall is 50, 50 or 40 rounds, whatever, 50. And that's, oh. that's all, that's all that they're getting. Now wow. that, that does 
that does come into play, like, you know, the laziness of humans, you know I mean? If it's, if it's spend the t- spend the weekend with your family or go spend your own money to go shoot, you know, me personally, I mean, if I, if I was carrying a gun every day on the street, I would be spending my own money if I, you know, if I wasn't getting it from the department, but a lot of guys, they don't, they don't have the time if they, if they can't do it on duty time and they have to spend their own money, well, they're going to, they decide to spend the time with their family. And I don't, I would never freaking judge anyone for that, but that's where the operation blue comes in. After I saw that and heard not only, and I don't want to say, you know, they're, the lack of skill, but I would say the lack of training. I, I couldn't believe that that's all that they were getting, you right. know? So that, that, that was the whole reason why it started the operation blue. Like, all right. I, I gotta, mean, that's, that's disturbing to hear that. that. Sorry, oh, Bob. Yeah. That, that's disturbing to hear that number. I mean, you know, you're talking about 50 rounds. I, I can't even imagine a scenario, you know, in, and it's no wonder, you know, you got 18, 19 year old kids making huge choices as soldiers or Marines, you know, going into rooms, you know, where you got 0.4 seconds to make a decision, you know, which yep. is about the equivalent of hitting a 95 mile an hour fastball. You know, right. you're going into these rooms and you're making these huge decisions as a young kid. I mean, the training, you know, it, it has to be top of the line. So these departments, you know, and, and I understand the budgetary issues, but when you have the money and, and under leadership and leadership is not training those officers, right. That's, that is a disgusting misallocation yeah. of resources. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you know, you, you got to look at it from the leadership point of view too, or when it, I mean, it is straight up comes down to money. I mean, you got to talk, you got to think of how many law enforcement officers are out there. You know, if they were letting them or if they were doing five or six classes a year to get these guys, uh, that wouldn't even be enough to properly train them. But at least it'd be something. I mean, you're talking a ton, a ton of money just on range time and and ammunition. So, you know, I I get it. And that's that's why I did the Operation Blue. Like, how... How can we get them free training where they don't have to spend for ammo or they don't have to spend the money on ammo? They don't have to spend the money on the, on the instruction. Yeah. Because otherwise they just, they don't, they don't, it's, it's very expensive. Right. When you're talking about all of the LE in the United States, I mean, it's a huge number. So, yeah, but yeah, something does have to be done because it's not, it's not enough, you know, to get, to get what they're getting at the Academy and then only get, once a year, it's, you know, and that's really just to get their qual. Now, some departments are different, but uh, I would say the majority, that's, that's it. Yeah. Not enough. I, I would say, okay. um, I, I would go as far as to say is, uh, you know, some of the issues that have taken place, you know, throughout the country over the years between law enforcement and civilians in, in cases where, cause you know, there's, there's shootings and things like that. And I think if, um, if you pay too much attention to the media, it'll kind of drive you crazy. Uh, yeah, being either anti-cop <laughs> or pro-cop, but yeah. I, I think if you look at you know reality, most interactions that police officers have with civilians end up being okay. And um, I think the media kind of sensationalizes some of the the bad interactions. And oh um, yeah, 
Absolutely. And I, but I do think that in some cases, you know, had some of these officers had a little more time to train and stuff like that, some of those bad interactions might have ended a little differently, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't speak for Bob, but just, you know, just knowing the difference in training and, like, things becoming instinctual, things even as simple as, you know, running with my team and doing mag drills all the time, you know, just just things where it becomes reflexive. You know, I, I look at a lot, I watch a lot of these videos, and I can't speak for each individual officer because I don't know what's going on inside of their head, John. Uh, but and I and I can't speak for Bob on this either. But oftentimes, as I watch these videos and I kind of play them back again and again, uh, I, I I watch it and I think that that's that's fear, that's nervousness. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. there are nerves there, and that there's no yeah. place for that. And it's understandable to go like into a situation fear, but it's what you do with that fear, you know, that that handles that moment. And when it's instinct, you know, it doesn't really allow for that time to kick into where you're feeling the, that fear of those nerves. And, and Bob can speak to that more than I can. But I just know that the things that when they became more instinctual, it was easier for me to pull that trigger because it was instinctual. Yeah. Well, and that's when it comes down to shooting. I was going to say before you said that, I mean, just, just the situations that end up bad that didn't need to be like what, what you said, you know, you know, might not be the right word, but you know, the fear there, that's mm-hmm. where, when it comes to my classes, like I was saying, I want you to come out of my class being more confident, like knowing you know how to handle that gun and knowing that uh, what you're going to shoot at, you're, you're going to hit, you know, and you're going to be able to, you're going to be able to do it fast and accurate. Uh, that comes down to that confidence thing. Well, you're going to be less likely to draw or to pull the trigger if you are confident that you're going to win. Mm-hmm. So right. I, uh, I agree. I I think the the lack the lack of training and and not knowing that you can actually properly handle that gun, you know, fast and accurate is it it does come into play. So right. and and yeah, Bob, yeah, I wanted to since we're yeah. kind of talking about you know that mental aspect, um, as far as and I guess it comes down to being confident and, and remaining calm, um. And and in your experience in the, in the military and in, in going overseas into combat, uh, have you seen instances where guys have lost their cool and it turned into a bad situation? Uh, I no, me personally, I haven't seen that. I'm sure that has been the case. Uh, you know, I, and I think that goes down to where everywhere I've worked, you know, we are trained to a higher standard. Like, so we have that confidence, you know, isn't that, isn't that amazing though, John? And that's, that's, you know, sorry to interrupt Bob, but that's amazing to hear. That shows you the high standard of training there, John. Um, You know, where guys are going into the scenarios and there, and, and Bob can say personally that he's never seen that. I mean, that that's pretty incredible. But I think that is, I mean, not only just being the best at what you're doing, but it all, it comes down to knowing that you can do it. It's that confidence. Right. And I, you know, I think the big thing too, and I said it last time we were, cause we, I think we, we covered mindset, uh, last time. And you know, that, that's, that's 30 or 40 minutes of talking anyhow. But like the one thing that I'll tell people, like if you, if to kind of prepare yourself better, if you, I mean, if you're, if you're carrying the gun 
every day if you're a concealed carry guy or law enforcement. I mean, you have to start thinking. The two things I say is you need to, every day you walk out that door and you're carrying, you have to expect a bad thing's going to happen and you have to accept the fact that a bad thing could happen. And if right. you if you think that daily, when that bad thing actually happens and you you're expecting it and you're accepting it, it's not going to be as stressful as a situation. The guys that walk out the door with a gun strapped to them and they don't, you know, they're scared of something happening. What do you think is going to happen when they get in a situation? You yeah. mentally have to be prepared to expect it and to accept it. You know, going to that mental side, it kind of reminds me almost, and this is obviously a more extreme scenario, but it reminds me of when, uh, you know, John, I've talked to you very often about my World War II guys and some of these guys going through the Battle of the Bulge and Iwo Jima and things like that. But, you know, these guys, I remember some of these guys having like letters, you know, already written out to their family, like talking about their death. Right. And like how they just wanted their family to go forward and stuff. And I said, you know, well, what was the greatest you know, sense of fear that you had? And some of them will even tell me that, hey, I wasn't really that afraid. It was just the fact, like, in my head, I was already gone. I was already dead in my head. Like, right. I had already experienced yeah. the worst possibility in my head. So there was nothing the enemy could do to me. And I think that, like, kind of mental training, I know that's a much more extreme kind of mental, you know, vision of, you know, what could happen. But I think that kind of speaks to the powerful side of that mentality and just understanding that there is a possibility of something going wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, that, you know, some of that, that mental stuff really is what separates, you know, the, the, the good reaction and the bad reaction. And, um, you know, yeah, I, I, I see it all the time. Like, you know, I take the subway uh, here in New York daily. And, you know, in New York City, if, if you ride the subway as much as I do, you'll see. I, I would say every time I get on the subway, I see someone who has some kind of like mental health issue. Um, you know, a guy gets on the train, he's talking to himself or a guy gets on the train, he's yelling at the top of his lungs or, you know, that kind of thing. And the amount of people that, you know, I notice this as, you know, I'm sitting down, I'm looking around the amount of people who are not prepared for something to happen. Like they're just not paying attention to anything. It's really yeah. astounding. So I remember one time this guy got on the train and he had like, uh, I wasn't sure what it was. He had something in his hand. And, um, at the time it was in the papers, you know, there was like, this guy was going around like cutting people on the train. So I'm looking at him and he's kind of pacing back and forth and he looks like he has like kind of violent energy, I want to say, if, if that makes any sense. And so I'm like, I'm not going to take my eye off this guy until he gets off the train or until I, I get off the train. And right. he's standing next to people who are just like, you know, looking down, reading a book or something like that. And I'm like, if this dude decides to just lose his mind for a second, he's going to cut someone and they're they're going to have no way to react or... Uh, you know, they, they're going to get cut and then freeze and, you know, maybe even get yep. killed. And it's it's just amazing how much people don't yeah. seem to don't have even, that. Yeah, they just don't even pay attention. Like, that person, like... No yeah. situational yeah. awareness. Oh, forget about it. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's funny that you speak to that, John, because I noticed the same thing when I was in New York. There were several times where I noticed guys with the kind of that, you know, same kind of violent energy. And, and, um, you know, I was just watching them the whole time. Like I had my eyes on them and I'm looking at people and they're just on their phones on there. And I I get it. Like you're in the scenario all the time, but you know, you're in the scenario all the time. And it's, you, you, you can never lose that situational awareness, especially in a 3d battlefield in the world that we live in where terrorism or the possibility of things happening and going wrong is a constant, you know, yeah. What were you say, Bob? No, I just, yeah, I said, you never know. You never know. It's it's that situational awareness and that idea that, hey, man, you know, technically no place is really safe. You know, right. it's not going around or fear mongering or anything like that. It's just having to do with the fact that, yes, I do know my exits. Yes, I do know where I'm seated at in a, in a building and how quickly I can get out, those kinds of things. And, and then monitoring a situation where it's like you said, somebody's walking around like that. Yeah. My eyes aren't coming off that guy. Yeah. You know? like, well, once I I'm, see I'm, that, you know, we make I'm eye contact. I'm thinking it's going to go wrong. You yeah, know? You, you see that that maniac look in his eyes. You're like, you know what? I'm not going to take my eye off you. Yeah. How much, yep. you know, how, how do you train that, Bob? You know, somebody, because that's kind of built in, you know, and John John's talking, speaking about it from, you know, he, John didn't serve in the military, but obviously he has a situational awareness. He's kind of trained himself that way. How do you, you know, how do you train people for that? You talk about, you know, the basic training of, you know, of understanding the weapon and doing some of the basic drills. But how do you train for that? And do you train for that kind of situational awareness? Well, I don't, I mean, you you could, you could train them, you know, you, you could give classes on what you just said, you know, knowing your exits and always, always be looking for the, the way out or what you would do. Um, but I, I mean, really it's just getting guys, whoever's listening to this podcast, it's just <laughs> getting, getting them to think, you know, I mean, they're doing the right thing by listening to the podcast, uh, right. you know, watching videos or, uh, or going to classes. I mean, it's, 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 you just have to be aware. I mean, again, that goes into the, the whole scenario base. You know, you could give a class on, well, what happens if someone comes in this door and does this, 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 and this? Well, you could put the, you could tell someone a thousand different scenarios of that guy coming through the front door, and when it happened, it would be freaking, it would be totally different than what you freaking you trained him on. But right. just being a, just being aware and actually watching, and and uh, you know paying attention to things that's. That's what you need to be so at least you can react and you can see it happening instead of just like what John was saying, guys just on the subway either ignoring it or pretending it's not happening. Well, that's those if something does bad happen, they're not going to see it initiate and how are they going to react to that? Right. Right. So, I mean, it's just it's staying aware and always always paying attention, especially if it's someone that that is acting freaking uh crazy or funny yeah right you know? i see it every that, single day man. Like, yeah i mean I'm, you know make that. a mental note of that all right watch this guy and uh see what he see what he does see where he goes and then always you know pay attention to what he's doing right but i mean that yeah you can't it'd be it'd be hard to go yeah you could i could i could give a class anyone could give a class on you know what happens if the guys in the subway does this this and this well 
that's awesome to think about, but I guarantee when it happens, it's going to be totally different than what you were trained on. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just being able to react and kind of what you were saying with the CQB, Tim, like making that decision in freaking you know, a nanosecond. Right. That's, that's, that's life. And you have to yeah. be prepared to do that in any situation. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. So Bob, if, um, you know, anyone listening to the podcast, uh, any law enforcement guys are interested in reaching out to you or linking up, uh, where's the best place they can do that at? Yeah. So everything's on my website. So the best thing like to check schedules and, you know, emails and uh, phone numbers to contact me, uh, gamutresolutions.com. And anyone out there that uh, would like to donate to the Gamut Initiative, that is thegamutinitiative.org. Okay, and uh, the Gamut, you're spelling that as G-A-M-U-T? Yep. Yep, and then also... uh, I do post all my all my course course schedules every once in a while on IG, and that's Keller Gamut Resolutions. On Instagram. Correct. All right, cool. So, Bob, it was, it was great talking to you and having you back on. I know it's been a while, Heck but yeah, I um, know. Uh, yeah. yeah, Bob, thanks a lot for coming on. It was a uh, real privilege and honor to speak with you. Um, I, I know that, you know, this, this kind of perspective, it, it's needed to be shared by <clears throat> more society and just staying knowledgeable in every scenario. You know, I hear about it a lot, obviously being around the veterans project all the time, being around different veterans and special operations they are always constantly talking about awareness and how, you know, p- people need to be ready and you can't rely on, you know, law enforcement to take care of your problems for you all the time. You know, you got to be able to self-sustain and take care of, you know, a problem if it comes. So um, it's really refreshing to have more people out there serving the public. Uh, so I appreciate that. You're very welcome. And for both of you guys, uh, like I said, if you ever want to uh, hit up one of my classes, check out the schedule as well. Yeah, I'm sorry that John hasn't taken you up on that yet, by the way. I apologize for him. (laughs) I just like to tease John. It's just fun. So anytime we can point something out, you know. John, I'm a nice guy on the range, so don't be scared. (laughs) (laughs) John's just nervous. He's going to get in there with a special operations veteran, and you're going to be screaming at him. I definitely don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) And and I also wanted to ask, um, Bob, so you don't just do training in a one like centralized location. Like you're, you're moving around to do training as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all over the, I'm all over the country. I try to space out the open enrollment ones as, as good as possible, but I do, uh, a lot of the classes are just guys contacting me wanting to get a group together. So it's, you know, uh, they host the class. So depending on anywhere in the country, they want it. Uh, they can host the class, you know, they set up the range, get the guys and then I, I come out to them. So that's, that's, that's awesome. really, that's really a good route uh, to go. Cause then that you're shooting with guys that, you know, everyone knows each other. So, right. Um, yep, that's definitely a, uh, I would say the 50% that I, of civilians that I do, 50% of those are 
uh, hosted classes by guys just wanting to set up their own group class. So that is definitely a possibility. Awesome. All right. So again, Bob, you know, thank you for doing this. Uh, you know, we appreciate yeah, it. Thanks for, having, yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, and uh, and thank you for your service as well. Well, you're welcome.